1: If I die
0: some 6,000 years ago in a beautiful, pristine garden. A demon snake entered. A dragon. A serpent. And it began to lie to the peaceful couple who lived there He came to turn their hearts against the Most High God. He came with evil intent, determined to win their hearts away from the Lord God of heaven. The third chapter of the book of Genesis, he says, you will not surely die. and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, The Lord God called to the man. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What was this poison tree that they ate from? It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil that would allow them to, they believed, make their own judgments about what they wanted to do with their lives, what they wanted to create, what they wanted to provide for themselves. And in so doing, they rebelled against the Most High God and they broke the harmony that was between them. Sin entered the garden in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And as sin entered the garden, they did not take responsibility, but began to blame one another, as is always the case when sin enters into a family or into the heart of a man or a woman. The first sign that repentance is beginning to take place is when a person is willing to take responsibility for their own actions and not blame another. On that day, harmony was shattered. The serpent had come in and lied to them. And the devastation and the loss was that they lost their godly commission to rule over the earth and turn it into a wonderful paradise. The garden was but a model for the rest of the world. Instead of that, a curse was spoken. They have lost their commission, their purpose for living. Now they are going to try just to survive And as they try to survive, the ground is going to be very difficult for them, and they are going to have to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow, painfully laboring day after day. That commission was not restored until Jesus died on Calvary. And then every curse, both against men and women, Was broken. And once more, the commission was granted to go and make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that Jesus had taught. It was Jesus' heart to restore the unity that had been lost, to restore the marriage that had been destroyed. It was in the home that sin first entered. It is today in the home that revival first needs to come. Yes, revival is desperately needed in the church, in the country, in Washington, D.C. Revival is needed across this globe But a revived church with unrevived homes would be simple hypocrisy. The problem must be met where we live. The home is where the lies uncovered them and they were ashamed and began to cover themselves up with fig leaves, totally inadequate covers. Now, please, the hardest place for revival to begin, the most costly place for revival to begin, is in the home. In the way you treat your wife, your husband, your children. Some men have been have been not able to understand the scriptures regarding revival in the home, and so they have assumed the position of, I am the boss, and you will do, wife, what I tell you to do. You will submit to me or else. That spirit of Satan has come into many churches and ruled and destroyed many marriages if I have to say to you, I'm the boss, you know automatically that I'm not really the boss. A boss doesn't have to say he's the boss because he is the chief servant of the house. With humility he serves as a model. But let's remind ourselves again what revival really is. Revival, in its simplest terms, means a new life in my heart, a restoration of God's presence in my life, not a life of self-effort or self-initiated activity. No, revival is not man's life. It's God's life. It's God coming in awesome power and setting right that which is wrong. It is God coming in mighty power by the blood of Jesus and restoring what the devil has stolen. It is the power of the Holy Spirit to bring confession, repentance, and restitution It is the moving presence of God to lift from our lives sickness, destruction, everything that came through the curses in the garden, and everything that Satan has done to try to destroy us. Revival is being brought back to life, restored to the image of Jesus, It is the life of Jesus filling us and flowing through us into the lives of other people. That life is made plain in fellowship, love, and oneness with those with whom we live. Nothing between us and God and nothing between us and others. The home is the place before all others where this needs to first be experienced. But how different is the experience of so many professing Christians? Irritations, frayed tempers, selfishness, resentments. Even if there's nothing... Definitely wrong that you can put your finger on. There's just not a complete oneness, not a a fellowship that needs to characterize Christians living together. All the things that come between us and others come between us and God and spoil our fellowship, not just with the person we live with, our wife, our husband, our children, our grandma, our grandpa. No, sin spoils our fellowship with all of these people. And because our fellowship is spoiled with these precious ones, it's also spoiled with God. Now, what's the real issue in our home? When we talk about homes... I mean the relationship that exists between a husband and a wife, specifically a parent and a child, a brother and a sister. The first thing that is wrong is that so many families are not really open with one another. So many times we have lived behind drawn blinds. The others don't know us for what we really are, and we don't intend that they should even those living in the most intimate relationships with with that special other one don't know really what goes on behind that facade. Our difficulties, our battles, our failures, what the Lord Jesus is working on in us to cleanse and change, there's a lack of transparency and oneness, openness, This is a result of sin. The first effect of the first sin was to make Adam and Eve hide from God behind the trees of the garden. They who had been so transparent with God and with one another now find themselves hiding from God because of sin. And if they hid from God, you can be quite sure they began to hide from one another. I'm sure after the presence of God left them, Eve said, why are you trying to blame me? It's your fault too. You could have told me not to eat of that fruit. We're both guilty before God and we both received the curse. And I can picture Adam throwing up his hands and saying, I can't win with you. It was your fault. You're the one who tempted me. You took the place of the devil and you tempted me. And even today, I hear churchmen quote unquote say, It was the woman who made us fall. The woman is responsible for our sin. Such lying pride. This is a sure sign that that person has not experienced oneness with Jesus. There's still bitterness rankling in their heart. Now, what was hidden in Adam's heart? What was hidden in Eve's heart? what is now hidden in your heart do you have something to hide from God are you hiding from another person do you have a wall of reserve which acts like a mask with which you cover yourself Do you hide yourself by telling jokes and always laughing and being the jokester? Are you afraid to become serious because you don't want anyone to get too close to see who you really are? And so you have a game going, a bluff. And so you're not real with other people. Many years ago, before I began to really grow in Jesus, I had one side of me that some in the public saw, and I had another side of me that my church saw, and I had another side of me that my wife and my children saw. And I tried never to let the three come together, because if they did, I would be exposed and embarrassed. I have made it a point in the prayer closet to no longer be divided. To be the same with people at church, people on the street, or with my wife. I want you to be able to look at me and say, this is who Ray Greenley really is. This is what he stands for. This is what he does. So that everything is out in the open. There is no hiddenness there. I found it to be a much more peaceful way to walk with Jesus. Now, let me take just a minute and digress. I don't like to talk about money on the broadcast, but frankly... Many of you have listened to this broadcast for many years, and you have never given a dime toward maintaining it on the air. I do need to hear from many of you this week and next week before the end of December. This is a month when people spend much of their time and money buying gifts for people and totally forgetting that this is about Jesus. What gift will you bring to Jesus? You say it's the celebration of Jesus' birthday, and then you give gifts to everyone but Jesus? Really? I need to hear from you. It will mean a great deal to my heart. It will be a great encouragement to me, and it will afford us the ability to remain on the air for another next month. We go month to month, trusting each month that Jesus will provide exactly what is necessary that we could continue the next month. You can go online, and you can give 703... No, let me not give you that number yet. I will in just a moment. Go online and go to nationalprayerchapel.com. nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give there online or you can simply write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, that address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Just another quick side note. Some of you have asked, is Alexandra, my wife, all right? Yes, she's sitting right across from me in a chair, listening and she will be writing the posting for the Internet. But this has been uh, the last week's very wearing on her as she has dealt much with family. Everything is okay, but she's had to expend a great deal of time and energy. And she's tired this week, so she said, I'm going to take the week and just rest, and I said, yes, please do that. So she's resting, and I'm planning very soon she'll be back on air together with me. But thank you for asking, and thank you for being concerned. Now I have one other thing I need to to ask you about. The National Prayer Chapel is a house church. What do I mean by that? I mean we meet in our home, but much more than that, the National Prayer Chapel has become and is becoming a fellowship of people that is not institutional. You don't come in and listen and leave. You come into the meeting. It's a two-hour meeting. You come into the meeting and you share praise reports from Jesus. You share the prayers and concern for the lost, each week, a different person shares a perspective from Scripture. It's a time of intimate closeness and fellowship with other believers in encouraging one another and praying for one another. Now, do you need this kind of place? Do you need the accountability of this kind of place? Are you willing to become transparent and walk in oneness With a small core of people who are praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to be a part of this, call me and I'll be happy to give you my home address. You're welcome to come. Every Sunday morning at ten o'clock we meet, and then every Tuesday evening we meet for prayer. So you're welcome. The phone number where you can reach me, this is my personal cell number, is 703-489-1785. That number again, 703-489-1785. This is for those of you who earnestly desire a closer walk with Jesus. You want to be entirely sanctified. You want to be washed in the blood of Jesus and you want to walk in victory, sharing the gospel with others and winning them to Jesus and having a place where you can bring them that's alive and vibrant in the power of the Spirit. So if you'd like to come, call me 703 489 1785. You're welcome to come and visit once. When you come twice, we count you as family. So you make the decision. Now let's come back once more to the, to the study. And I'd like to share a couple of scriptures. In First John, that is the epistle of John, not the gospel. In First John... I'm going to begin reading in the first chapter at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. Do you notice the purification from all sin comes after we are willing to walk in the light? Now, I've heard many times people say, Oh, this church is not safe for me. What are they saying? They're saying, I have hidden resentments in my heart, but it's not safe to talk about. Well, why isn't it safe to talk about? Because somebody might not like it? Because you want to come and blame somebody else for what is happening in your life? Remember, the first sign of revival is that I take responsibility for my own actions and my own life. So when someone says, I'm not going to share because it's not safe, I say, it's not safe because you're not willing to repent. You're not willing to lay it on the line. You're not willing to change to the image of Christ. If you want it to be safe, then get right with Jesus and get right with others. And as you start walking in the light, this is verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So you don't wait for something to be safe. You begin right at that point and begin to confess your own anger and your own bitterness and your own hardness of heart, taking responsibility for who you are. Some of you are so quick with your jabs, with your little comments, because you're angry. If you're going to have revival in your home, you're going to have to begin to confess what's really going on with no hiddenness. Now, I want to read another passage. In this passage... The writer to John, the writer, John, says, Chapter 2, verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know God. We are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one which you have since the very beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining, and anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now let's be very plain. Eve had something to hide from God and Adam had something to hide from God they also begin to hide from one another and behind that wall of reserve which acts like a mask we cover over our real selves now another part that's desperately wrong in our homes is a failure to really love one another You see, if we come out of the darkness, we stop hiding, we're then free to love. But as long as we're hiding, we're not walking in love. We're walking in deceit and lies. Well, somebody said, that could never be said of our home, for no one could love another more than my husband and I love each other. Oh, but wait a minute. It depends on what you mean by love. Love is not just a sentimental feeling. It's not even a strong passion. The famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13 tells us what real love is. And if we test ourselves by this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll find out that in some ways we may not be loving each other at all. That our behavior is actually in the opposite direction. And the opposite of love is hate, indifference. So let's take a minute and look at some of the things that this passage in First Corinthians 13 tells us about love. First, love is patient, long-suffering. It's kind. Love vauneth not itself, or love does not boast. It's not puffed up, it's not conceited. Love does not behave itself unseemingly, is not rude, in other words. Seeketh not her own, is not selfish, is not easily provoked. Does not get irritated. Thinks no evil. Does not entertain unkind thoughts about another person. How do you measure up to those simple tests of your home, of how you deal with your husband or your wife or your children? Are you often impatient with your wife or your husband? Are you unkind in the way you answer back or you react? A husband and wife can even envy the other, his gifts or his spiritual progress. Parents can become envious of their children, and how often is there bitter envy between brothers and sisters? And what about courtesy? Courtesy is just love in the little things, but it's in the little things that we trip up. We think, I'm home. I don't have to take care of anybody here. It's up to them to love me. Conceit. Conceit comes in all sorts of packages. We think we know best. We want our way. And so sometimes a wife will boss a husband or nag a husband and sometimes the husband who thinks the wife should submit to him because he's the boss will constantly tell her what to do and the result will be one will despise the other if you think your wife is stupid and has to be constantly bossed and told what to do in reality you are despising her as a woman And it's not uncommon for a wife to think that a husband is quite stupid. And if he were just smarter, of course, what does that say about her? Because she chose to marry the idiot. Do you see how destructive this becomes? When a husband and wife despise one another, or when a mother despises one of her children, there's a total lack of respect. An attitude of superiority begins to set itself up. And then at the bottom of our hearts, we begin to despise someone. We will then blame them for everything that doesn't go the way we want it to go. And yet we would say, oh, I love you. And cover over the filth of despising another person with sweet words. When you think about not seeking your own way, that is not being selfish, how many times do you put your interests ahead of somebody else and let them take care of what needs to be taken care of because you're tired or you don't want to do it or You think you've done more than your share, and so they need to step it up. Are you provoked quickly? I've heard the saying, he doesn't suffer fools very well. How dangerous that is when it's between a husband and a wife. Or when a parent begins to refer to one of their children... I wish you weren't so dumb when I was a child it was not uncommon for one of the adults I won't identify who to say to me if your brains were dynamite Ray you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose or they would say you're as dumb as a rock I wish you'd just think and then a little later Raymond I wish you'd just grow up well, wait a minute, I'm a little boy, five or six years old. I'm not supposed to be grown up. But their are impatience and harshness. And those things scarred my life so that I grew up thinking I was ugly and dumb. I'm not ugly and I'm not dumb. I'm, I'm made in the image of Jesus and it's taken me years to get past this self-condemnation of being ugly and dumb. I used to think of myself as an ugly redneck farm boy who was never going to make anything of himself in his life. Well, that's simply not true. When I stepped into Jesus He made me his servant But how easily provoked we are With another in our family How quick to be irritated By something in the other person How often we have allowed Unkind thoughts to roll through our minds Resentful feelings Over something the other has done Or left undone Yet we profess that there's no failure of love in our family. These things happen every day, and we think nothing of them. These quick jabs fly, elbows fly. We think that's just the normal way to live. But they are the opposite of love, and the opposite of love is hate. Impatience is hate. Envy is hate. Conceit and self-will are hate selfishness, irritability, resentment. They are hate, and hate is sin. He that saith he is in light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. What tensions, what barriers and discord all of this stuff causes in a family relationship. That's why revival has to begin in the family. Now, the question is, do you want new life? Do you want revival in your family? Do you want revival in your family? Are you prepared to continue in your present state, or are you, re- are you ready to be hungry for a new life in Jesus, the life of Jesus in your home? Between your heart and your wife's heart, between your heart and your husband's heart, between you and the children, are you ready for a new heart? For not unless you get hungry will you be willing to take the necessary steps, and the first step is to call sin by its right name. Your sin, not somebody else's sin. And then you have to take that sin that has been uncovered in your heart and go to the cross and trust the Lord Jesus right then to cleanse you from it and stop this craziness in your heart. As we bow our heads at the cross, his self-forgetful love for others, his long-suffering and forbearance will begin to pour into your heart. The precious blood of Jesus cleanses us from the lack of love, the ill will, and the Holy Spirit comes and fills us with the very nature of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13 is nothing less than the very nature of who Jesus is, and it is his gift to us. His nature becomes our nature. This Process must happen every single time you find yourself beginning to move into a lack of love and letting hatred creep creep into your heart. Now, when you make the decision that you are going to walk like Jesus in your home, you will stop yelling at your kids. You will discipline them, but you will discipline them in love and not angry impatience. Now, as you begin to walk this, I'll tell you what I see in me. I constantly am finding places where I must give up my rights, even as Jesus gave up his rights for me. we're going to see things in ourselves when we react so sharply to another person's selfishness and pride it's simply a reflection of my own selfishness and my own pride when your wife speaks sharply to you or you speak sharply to her it is a reflection of of what is in your heart And when you react to that sharp word, it's revealing the same thing in your heart. We're going to have to accept another's ways and doings as God's will for us and meekly bend our neck to God's province power. Now, that doesn't mean that we must accept another person's selfishness as God's will for that person. Far from it. But what it does mean is that God is wanting to use the other person's judgments and wickedness to bring a change in our own hearts. If we're broken we will not respond in the way of the wolf. Certainly, if we're parents, we have to correct our child with firmness, but with love. And none of this correction will flow out of selfish motives, but only out of love for others and longing for their good our own convenience and rights must at all times be yielded. Only so will the will and love of the Lord Jesus be able to fill us and express itself through us. When we've been broken at Calvary, we must be willing to put things right with others, sometimes even with the children. This is so often the test of our brokenness. Brokenness is the opposite of hardness. Hardness says it's your fault. What a different atmosphere will begin to prevail in your home when they hear you say, it's my fault. Remember, At the cross of Jesus, there's only room for one person. You cannot say, Okay, I was wrong, but you're wrong too. This is as much your fault as it is mine. No. You have to go alone to the cross and say, Lord God, I'm wrong. There was no reason for me to respond like a snake. There was no reason for me to respond with anger and bitterness. I give up my right to be treated as though I were somebody. Now, this is not easy, what I'm talking about. This is the true essence of crucifixion, where I stop my selfishness, and I stop my independence, and I stop my pretending, and I become transparent, and I no longer defend myself. God will work in the other person more through your brokenness than anything else you can do or say. And you may have to wait quite a time. You see, you can't change another person. You can only choose to make that change in your own life. And as you make that change in your own life and you don't meet impatience with anger, you don't meet with defense, you don't meet with, how could you treat me this way? Don't you see how you're sinning against me? If we humble our hearts before God and we say, oh Lord, I give up my rights Will you answer my prayer for my wife? Will you answer my prayer for my husband? I give him to you. I give my children to you. I don't want there to be a middle wall or partition between us. I want the wall broken down between us. I want to walk in the light. I am choosing Jesus to always be transparent, but also transparent in love and kindness and mercy and not in accusation and bitterness and harshness. Lord, I make a covenant to love my wife. I make a covenant to love my husband, even when they are unlovable. I'm not going to yell or jerk my children anymore in my anger because they've embarrassed me or because I've Become impatient with them. Lord, I'm not going to do that anymore. I die to my rights. Would you wash and would you cleanse me? And then you wait. And where true oneness comes is with husband and wife, both at the cross of Jesus, both submitted totally to him and to his will, both utterly given to serve him and follow him and to treat each other with courtesy and love and kindness. That's when there's revival in the home. And then revival can begin to flow into the church. Well, you've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. You recognize as I do that what I'm talking about is not easy it requires full crucifixion and if you'd like to be a part of the National Prayer Chapel where we are practicing this transparent crucifixion with Jesus then call me or talk with Alexandra at telephone number 703-489-1785 we meet every morning every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we're finished at 12 sharp. With time of prayer and sharing, uplifting sharing of praise reports, sharing the miracles done by God, if you'd like to be a part of that joyous gathering, then call right now, 703-489-1785. Now, I also need to just ask please would you be generous and give a gift for the work of the gospel do you care about the work of the gospel in this city if you do and the Holy Spirit is prompting you would you send that check or money order or cash send it to the National Prayer Chapel post office box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia 22195 that address again National Prayer Chapel Post Office Box 2346 Woodbridge, Virginia 22195 and thank you to the many of you who've already given God bless you my dear brother my dear sister I'll talk to you soon
1: Now unto able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, with